Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We're going to take a different tact today. We're going to talk about not the law itself, not the practice of law itself, but what drives us what makes us do what we do. This might get a little philosophical, but here's, here's how we titled it. Ideas and people who define us and inspire us. John, I know that you're one of the people who rarely wants to take credit for what you do. You constantly refer to other people who have inspired you. I can't think of a, a better way to start this out than talk about your family. You know, Eric, I was very, very lucky. I had wonderful parents. I have a great family. My father has passed away four or five years ago, but I grew up as one of 10 kids in, in St. Louis City. My father had three jobs, actually, and, and one of them was a produce stand on Saturdays at Soulard Farmer's Market in St. Louis, and he would walk around the house at four in the morning, start flipping on lights, waking us all up, and I think at, at age six or seven, he would just load us all in the truck, take us all down to spend the day with him. I'm certain we were more trouble than we were worth, you know, at that age, but that was it. He got us all up. We worked till, you know, six, seven in the evening. The benefits of that are incredible. I always tell people I learned more doing that than I did at any school, law school, undergrad, whatever. You got to meet people from different backgrounds. Most importantly, you got to spend time with your family, your brothers, sisters, all working together towards a single goal. It gave me a tremendous, tremendous feeling of self-worth because you know, I was actually contributing to the support of the family. And as I said, I, I come from a family of 10, and uh, I have seven sisters, two brothers. I'm right smack in the middle. And every one of us, I mean, without exception, has that work ethic just built in. My dad used to say, the worst sin of all is sitting on your ass. You know, I mean, get up and do something. Figure out what you think is the right thing and do it. Do it and, and, and live with the result. I wasn't so happy about it at the time. <laughs> Let me just tell you that. You know, getting up early in the morning, especially as a teenager, it's one of those things, I guess, as time passes and we get older, I cherish that time more and more. And without question, those are some of the best times and, and moments of my life working with my brothers and sisters and parents and, and grandparents. My grandparents would be down there too. It was a whole family deal. I did not have anybody waking me up at 4 a.m. I'm, I'm starting to feel coddled as I am reminded it was 4 a.m., not 6 a.m. I'm also thinking about the fact that it's hard physical work. You haven't really described what you were doing, but my understanding is you were actually carrying boxes of fruit and moving things and loading trucks and things like that. So it was a physically demanding job, right? Yeah. And just thinking about it makes me smile. My dad would always, he'd see us, whatever we were doing, you know, we weren't doing it fast enough or quick enough. He wanted to get it moving. He'd say, what are you trying to do? Make a career out of that? You know, let's go. And um, it was really fun. I was the oldest boy. And as a teenager, you don't always see eye to eye with your, with your parents. And, you know, as they say, as I got older, my dad got a lot smarter. And what was neat that he did was when I would argue with him about stuff or how to do things, he'd say, you want to do it that way? Great. And most of the time it wasn't the right thing to do or it wasn't the right way to do it, but he knew by me doing it the way I wanted, I'd learn, you know, I'd learn, well, that wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't do it like that next time. So it was, yeah, it was really cool. And I'm so lucky now today we have a small firm, 14 lawyers, 
and I have several family members. And how blessed is that to be able to work with family members now? My brother has been with me for many, many years. My brother, Tony, who's five years younger than me, he's the second oldest boy. And I have a nephew, Kevin. He's the oldest of, I think I have 45 or 40, 46 nieces and nephews. And he's the oldest. Kevin's been with me for eight or nine years. And I also have, you know, my son, John, we call him Johnny. Johnny's been with me five years as an attorney and Mary uh, about three years. Mary's in her third year right now. And what a phenomenal thing, not just work with your brother, your nephew, but your son and your daughter. I jokingly tell people that when my son Johnny started working for me five years, six years ago, I was amazed because it was the first time in about 20 years that he was ever interested in anything that I had to say. (laughs) He'd come in and ask me questions about a case or questions about procedure and something. And I thought, wow, he's actually asking me, but not only did he ask me, but he was genuinely interested in what my answer was. Having worked for my father, I know it's not always easy. There's a good side to it and there's a, there's a tough, difficult side to it. And, and hopefully the good outweighs the bad. I know it does for me. I want to take a detour to what I did. At the age of 15, I started teaching guitar lessons. I was a musician and I would sit in small rooms with hundreds of students and I would, with no training, no teacher training, I would try to figure out how to teach someone how to make music. This is a laboratory for me because you know, I did it for five years. I learned a lot about working with people. I look back to those moments as critical to figuring out who I was because I was really trying to explore how to motivate people, sometimes kids who didn't want to learn. And I learned a lot about human beings by doing that. And I'm thinking back to the market now. So it wasn't just physical. You had to deal with customers, some of whom are demanding and many of them are nice. And like you say, you can hear 15 different languages being spoken in the market. And I assume you learned some things about human beings. It's such a diverse market, and you're right. My father was an immigrant, came over with his brother, sister, my, and my grandparents. He was uh, 12 or 13 at the time, and it's such a melting pot. And not just people here, but you know, people from other countries, as you said, people who came speaking different languages. It taught work ethic. It taught responsibility. taught us math skills, you know, adding up what people were buying. The really cool thing is my, my father, as I said, passed away four or five years ago. He had the same stand or location at the market for literally 65 years, I think. And he turned it over to my cousin who came over from Lebanon with his family back in the seventies. And they've been running it since. So it's been able to continue since my dad gave it up, which is really cool. There's nothing like going down there. I can go down there on a Saturday now and help. And I've done that. I'll tell you another story. My office is downtown St. Louis. And my dad, after he retired from his, his main job at Union Pacific Railroad, he started opening up the market on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. And so business wasn't really significant. It didn't have a lot of business on Thursdays. It was kind of slow. And so I would go down from my office, literally five minutes away, six, seven blocks away, and I'd go down there to have a cup of coffee with him and talk, spend some time with my dad. I remember one day I went down there just to talk and, and, and see how he was doing. And I had a, you know, dress shirt on, a a jacket, dress shoes, and he's looking at his watch and he said, son, uh, can you watch the stand, okay, while I go down to the wholesale place, Produce Row, and pick up another load of stuff? I didn't get a chance to pick it up this morning. This is, you know, one, two in the afternoon. I said, no problem. And then he says, well, before you do that, can you, can you unload the van? (laughs) (laughs) So he could go down and pick up a new load. Of course, you know, took off my jacket. So here I am 
unloading the van, lifting boxes and putting them aside. And my dad's watching me saying, they're going to close in a little bit, son. Can you speed it up a little bit? (laughs) (laughs) So he'd get me working down there, waiting on customers. If I came down and had been in my fifties, practicing law for 30 years and you go down to that market, he'll talk, but he's going to have you waiting on somebody and putting produce out on the stand. And what a, a terrific father and a terrific situation to be able to work with him. Here's an idea that keeps me humble. The fact that those of us who are doing well can attribute a whole lot of that to just dumb luck. The fact that we were born in the right place to the right people, we were surrounded with the right people, that strangers came up and did nice things to us at key moments of our lives, that other people came up and mentored us. Your story, being born into that family meant that you were surrounded by people who were kindred spirits and had that work ethic it was built in. There's scientific studies now. It's uh, If you're surrounded, if you have as your friends and family, if you surround yourself with people who are smokers, you're much more likely to become a smoker. If you're surrounded by people who are obese, you'll be more likely, significantly more likely to become obese. You tend to become like the people you surround yourself with. And a lot of us don't have much choice when we're young, of course. We're just plopped into the world, into the situation. But that's something that I think about quite often, and it keeps me humble each day to think, wow, the good things that are going on, I can't take a lot of credit for a lot of that. I was just so lucky to be put in certain situations. Does that resonate with you? Absolutely. I grew up in a neighborhood that was a rough neighborhood. I mean, there was violence and drugs and crime and a lot of my classmates, kids I grew up with, a couple of them didn't make it. A couple of them were killed. Several of them spent time in jail. And, you know, I grew up on the same street and it was just a matter of me being lucky enough to have parents who were there for me and be able to give me the guidance that a young kid needs. I was just reading something the other day. They said, you're a combination of the five or so people that you spend the most time with. And that's so true. But let's think about that. I mean, I always tell law students, young men and women coming out of law school, looking for a job, going through the interview process. I tell them, look, you need to find the place where you're going to learn the most. And two things, where you're going to learn the most and where the people you're working for care the most about you and not chase who's going to pay you the most money. I mean, when I got out of school, you got out of school, you stayed with the same firm for 10 years or 20 years. That that doesn't happen anymore. I think every year or two, people are going to change. The firms change. They merge. And that is so important for mentors. It's a learning process. Everything we do is a learning process in life, in law. It's not just advancing your career. It's actually working in a place where the environment makes you want to come to work in the morning. You're happy to spend time with the people, you know, working on on something together versus an environment that may be toxic and you can't wait to get the hell out of there. I've often thought I want to be in places where I'm the dumbest guy in the room. And I seek these environments out. One of these things was I went to Washington University in St. Louis. I took cognitive science courses. And I basically took 30 hours of graduate study sitting in rooms filled with brilliant people. It was just amazing. And I, and I love trying to catch up with these people. I was in the first class and they were introducing themselves. And I said, hello, my name is Eric. I'm an attorney here in St. Louis. I just have an interest in cognitive science. And, and then the next person in line said, my name is Doug North. I'm an economist. My clients include eight countries. Two years ago, I won the Nobel Prize. Of course, I'm thinking, this is where I want to be. And that has been a good theme through my life. I want to be challenged constantly by people who actually not just give me good ideas, but make me look at my own ideas and reevaluate whether they're good ideas. And I love it when people can convince me I'm not thinking straight. 
that I need to reevaluate how I think about something. I think about all the really wonderful people, attorneys that I have had a chance to work with over the course of my career, and many of whom I still stay in contact with. And I'm just thinking, you know, what if I had not met them or started out at a different firm? I learned not just the value of hard work from my parents and responsibility, but it carried on in, in my professional career. I was able to work with some of the best attorneys in, in town, literally. And I think most of what I know, Eric, I got from two sources. One, working with really good lawyers who taught me how to do it or doing it on my own and messing it up. And that's about 90% of everything I know fits into those two categories. It's so much easier when you work with somebody who is willing to take the time to answer your questions and actually show you how to do things the right way. If you're at a firm where everybody is ethical and everybody is civil and gets along with everybody, that stuff's going to rub off on you. I mean, if you're at a firm where you see a senior attorney that you're working with cutting corners or maybe doing things that are questionable from an ethics standpoint, a young lawyer might look at that and say, well, you know what? I think most young lawyers would look at that and say, well, I guess that's the way we do it. That's acceptable. And it's not, you know, but there is no substitute for what we learn from others, people who inspire us. The other thing not to forget about is you got to pay that back. I try to do that because people were there for me and they pulled me aside when I was trying to do something, said, okay, that's probably not what you want to do. You want to kind of do it this way. So it's just really, really terrific. I've studied a lot of philosophy in my life and including a lot of moral philosophy. And when it comes time to making difficult decisions or ethical quandaries, I never refer to these philosophers. And I've, I've talked to philosophy professors who will tell me that they don't refer to these philosophers. They're, they're interesting academic exercises, but the question would then be what guides you? You hit a difficult spot and we all do. We're, we're dealing with very complicated issues and it can be disorienting. And something you said reminded me of what I do. I've got a group of 30 people who I really trust. And what really helps me on difficult moments I pretend they're all watching me. It's an imaginary thing. You know, they're, they're sitting there in a big jury box. 30 of the people I respect the most in life, they all know everything I know, and they're going to watch to see what I do next. And that really is powerful for me. Then if you're thinking about cutting corners or cheating somebody or whatever, it, it quickly goes away when you're imagining everybody you trust the most watching what you're doing. You know, Eric, that's a great point. That means that you can be a good influence for someone, even when you're not with them. Right. Right. I mean, that's really what you're saying. You know, yeah. I had a, uh, a teacher in high school and he was a Marianist brother. He became a priest later on in his career. And he was another person who had a tremendous influence on me as a young kid, a young person. He was our, not just a, one of my teachers, but he was my C team football coach. It was brother Mike Barber, you know, later in life, father Mike. And he taught at St. Mary's high school. And when I'm struggling with something tough and I'm getting ready to cut corners and say, oh, you know, just mail it in. Here's the deal. You did enough. You don't need to go the final, you know, step. I always think of Father Mike and he would just push us. What I learned from him was, was several things. One was discipline. He would always follow you. And if you weren't giving it your best effort, he had a saying, he'd always say, don't cheat yourself. If you're not giving it your best effort, whatever it is, if you're doing stretching or running sprints or whatever, or your, your homework, he'd look at you and say, now, why would you cheat yourself? And you always want to do your best because it's the, it's the best thing you can do for you. 
And that always sticks with me whenever I'm in the middle of something and I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, there's eight more cases I could read, but I think I've got enough. You know, read them, look at them. He really instilled that in me. We would get ready to play our, you know, football game on a Saturday and we would always go to mass before every game. And it was either that morning or the, or the day before, you know, the Friday before, and we'd all crowd into the chapel at St. Mary's High School. He would always say, number one, please, Lord, don't let any of these young men be hurt in this contest coming up. And then he would say, without exception, please help the other team play their best. It's what he would say. <laughs> and we'd be looking around like, hey, we can use a little of that. You know, what, what are you talking about? You know, and that's just the way he was. You know, he never kept statistics at all. He said they're individual things. We don't need to concern ourselves with that. I mean, no statistics. This is a football team, a high school football team. He refused to allow people to keep statistics. You know, it's a whole thing that's a team effort. He was one of the most intense people that I've ever met and also the most humble. And that combination is just terrific. I mean, he, it showed me that you can be a civil, humble person and still be the most competitive and intense person. You know, they're not mutually exclusive. And that carries over to exactly what we do, you know, as lawyers. I mean, we can disagree without being disagreeable. You can be a formidable opponent without being rude to the other side. We live in such a complex social, physical stew of stuff. I mean, the world is just disorientingly complex. And I think that these sayings, like you say, don't cheat yourself, always do your best. These are all really important things because they're like guideposts. They're like little signs in the sand that help you at difficult moments. John, I know how much you think about your family and they've taught you a lot of things. And you've often mentioned things that not just the hard work, but your parents were extremely generous to the outside community. And I know that's uh, taken root in you too. You want to talk to us a little bit about generosity and how you've been affected by the people around you who have taught you these lessons. One of the things that I learned from my parents was giving to others, was generosity. And it's not what I was told, but it's what I saw day in and day out. You know, I worked at the market with my dad every Saturday morning, every week. Actually, I was with him every Friday morning. We'd go down to the produce row, the wholesale place to buy the stuff. So it was two days a week I spent with him, you know, before school on Fridays and and all day Saturday. And what I would watch, and this happened quite a bit down there in Soulard, families would come or somebody would come and they didn't have enough money to buy their produce. And without exception, I mean, without exception, my dad would say, don't worry about it. Just take it. He wouldn't even take money when they came back, you know, a week later. And this is somebody who didn't have, you know, I mean, he didn't have money to spare. He had 10 kids. He's supporting, working three jobs. And he never turned anybody away. I mean, just never turned anybody away. So let me fast forward about 25 years later. I got some award from one of the organizations here in St. Louis for charitable work that I was doing. I was sitting at my dad's house and, you know, I was an adult with kids. And and I said, hey, dad, just making conversation. You know, you want your dad to be proud of you. And I said, you know, hey, I'm getting this award. And he said, yeah, what's it for? And I told him, you know, very proud. And he said, well, son, that's very nice. But he said, you don't need to get an award for doing what you're supposed to do, is what he told me. That's just the way he was. I look at giving back as something you're supposed to do. It's not above and beyond. You know, everybody has some means to do something. If you can't give funds, you can give time. But I saw that growing up with my parents. That has carried over with my brothers and sisters. We've started a charity in my father's name. It's been up and running for about three years now. 
And what we've continued doing is giving produce to some of the shelters in St. Louis, fresh produce, continuing what my dad did, you know, while he was alive. Here's one thing that you did uh, a while back that I thought was really interesting. You were appointed the president of the local bar association, the Bar Association of Metropolitan St. Louis. And you gave a short speech and you concluded the speech by asking everyone to stand up and recite again the oath that attorneys take in the state of Missouri. Maybe you could comment on why you did that. Everybody's always, you know, looking and searching for answers and the right way to do things. And wouldn't it be wonderful as practicing attorneys, if we had a blueprint, you know, a plan, something in writing that could really direct us and guide us in terms of how we should act and how we should practice and how we should deal with others in the profession. Well, guess what? We have that. And every lawyer, every attorney in the state of Missouri, not only do they have that, but they've taken an oath to do this. And what I'm talking about, as you mentioned, is it's the oath of office that each attorney in Missouri takes when they get sworn in. Eric, I have a copy, as you know, I have it scotch taped to the, to the wall in my office. And I told my son when he was sworn in to do the same thing. I said, read it. Actually, Judge Teitelman, who's a wonderful, wonderful man, a great example for all of us, was able to swear my son in. And that was just wonderful. What, a, what an honor and what a neat experience for me and for my son. He made the comment to my son, Johnny, right after he was sworn in. He said, don't forget these words. And again, the words I'm talking about, that I will maintain the respect due courts of justice, judicial officers, and members of my profession, and will at all times conduct myself with dignity becoming of an officer of the court in which I appear, that I will never seek to mislead the judge or jury by any artifice or false statement of fact or law, that I will at all times conduct myself in accordance with the rules of professional conduct. And here's the one I really like. It's the last sentence that I will practice law to the best of my knowledge and ability and with consideration for the defenseless and oppressed. So help me God. Could you imagine a profession where you take an oath to practice your very best? Each of us attorneys, we've taken an oath as part of being sworn in as an attorney to always do your best, to the best of your knowledge and ability with consideration for the defenseless and oppressed. I see that every day when I walk in my office. I got that hanging on the back of one of my shelves and I see it every day, but it wouldn't be a bad habit or a practice to have that under the glass on your desk and just read it every day. Read it every day when you get to the office. What a great thing. I mean, you know, I guarantee I didn't follow this every day of my profession, but it's something to strive toward. And boy, just th think of where we would be individually and, you know, as a practice, as a profession, if everybody just read it once a week, you know, to kind of remind ourselves of uh, what we can aspire to. That oath makes it a lot harder to practice the law. It does. It's a very, very, very high standard. But thinking about that, I'm going to always try to do my best. The other thing, too, I'll maintain respect to courts and other members of my profession at all times, conducting myself with dignity. Those are some phenomenal words. This is what we all need to try to do. And as I said, I'll be the first one to admit I don't make the cut. You know, there's been times when, you know, I've fallen way short, but it's something to keep in mind and a goal to keep in mind. It's what we've taken an oath to try to do. It is a phenomenal document and that it probably makes it many times harder to be an attorney. Your favorite part, 
with consideration for the defenseless and oppressed. That's really a big burden, you might think. But then again, I know you don't see it as just a burden. So maybe could you comment on that? It's like a quote from Abraham Lincoln that I read a while back. He was asked about religion and he said something like, you know, here's my religion. When I do good things, I feel good. When I do bad things, I feel bad. And that's kind of my approach to most things. If you're doing what's right and you're doing something that's good, guess what? You feel really good about it. It makes you feel great for a long time. And I think as time passes, you feel even better about it. But when you do something that ain't so good, you do something that's bad, makes you miserable. Okay. And so I personally get way more out of trying to do good things or helping people than the people I'm helping get. I mean, absolutely. Just absolutely. Maybe we should mention mentoring at this point because that's unpaid, right? Yet I know that you do this and most other good attorneys I know in this town have wide open doors, so to speak, for people who call and it's a young attorney, they need some help. They may be needing some encouragement. Maybe they're feeling like they're drowning in a case. What's your perception about the extent to which attorneys in in our town are generous with their time on those situations? I think everybody is if they're presented with an opportunity, but too often we don't stop and engage in a conversation or talk to somebody. You go to court and you see, you know, the the attorney you're with on the case, you know, you've had dealings with them, you traded emails and you're sitting there waiting for 20 minutes to get your case heard, or maybe you're waiting out in the hallway, strike up a conversation and find out something about them personally. What's their family? Where are they from? Ask them about their practice. You know, how's your practice going? What do you do? How long have you been there? And I think what that does is it, it opens doors and it builds or starts the possibility of building a relationship. And it's easy to initiate start conversations with people you see every day anyway. Folks on the other side of cases, folks you're working with on cases. I've done it with witnesses. Some of the witnesses that I've met in cases, you know, whether expert witness, lay witnesses, a police officer, a a state trooper who investigated an accident, find out a little bit about their background, who they are, what makes them tick. You got to reach out. And I think once you reach out and you make that connection, I think almost everybody wants to help. Everybody would be glad to answer a question or help you But I think it's just too easy to just keep to yourself and move on down the road. Be genuinely concerned about other people and ask them how they're doing. And I think good things will come from it. It pays forward, in my experience, that when you get to know the person as a human being, and it's so easy not to, you could easily just lock on down into, you know, trying to work on your case and prepare your arguments and move forward. But when you take the time to get to know your opposing counsel and witnesses, it creates a buffer that when something might go wrong and something will go wrong, there's going to be snags and misunderstandings. But I think everyone's more inclined to give each other charitable readings about what just came out of their mouth. If you know each other, because it makes practice of law much more enjoyable. You actually look forward to seeing your opposing counsel. They're good people, right? They're just doing their job. You know, Eric, that's an excellent point. Think of how hard it is to be rude to somebody that you know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's easier when it's a stranger and you don't know them. You've never talked to them. You don't know anything about their background. But if you spend five or 10 minutes talking to them, getting to know them, getting to know something about them personally, you're not going to be rude to them. They're not going to be rude to you. You're going to try to work it out. And as you point out, it's not just good for the profession and good for business. It's good for you personally. I mean, it's the difference between being aggravated and frustrated and arguing and fighting with somebody versus being in a better state of mind and enjoying what you do more. 
As we're exploring this topic, it's obvious that there's a lot of people and a lot of ideas that inspire us both. So this probably is a good time to wrap up episode one of People and Ideas That Inspire. We'll be back with episode two next time. This is Eric B. signing off. This is John Simon. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want to look at the nation's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription, tune in to the other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library in Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.